Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk podcasts. This is your host, Susie Lewis, speaking from Toulouse. In this episode of Let's Talk, we will be discussing transformation and how to adapt to the new paradigms of 21st century leadership. I am delighted to welcome Otti Voigt, a global business leader passionate about change, leadership, and constantly disrupting these paradigms to create sustainable shareholder value as well as a more inclusive workplace. Otti, welcome to the show. Susie, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much indeed. Likewise. Thank you for coming. Otti, you have over 20 years of experience in implementing strategic business change in multicultural, multifunctional and essentially complex organisations. And you deal with this subject in your current role as the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Transformation Officer of ING. Your purpose is to move the needle on leadership and create sustainable transformation in organisations and more inclusive and productive organisational systems, which is a passion we share and indeed how we connected. So our shared belief in building high-performing teams through leveraging difference positively and working explicitly on the human-centred aspect of transformation is where I'd like to start because we could probably talk all day, but I will try and be disciplined. So clearly, there is a difference for me between a transformation project, in inverted commas, and sustainable transformation. What's your view on that to start with? That's a great observation, Susie, and I would agree indeed very much. By definition, a project is a more temporary endeavor with dedicated resources to achieve, in most cases, a relatively specific outcome. So in order to set up a project, we would normally create work streams with KPIs and milestones and some centralized project office to coordinate execution until the project is complete. And in my mind, sustainable transformation is something very different. It's much more about creating a capability inside an organizational system to continually self-adapt to kind of a changing context and environment, about creating that true learning organization. And this means, for example, that an organization needs to become able to continually listen and detect changes in its environment and then harness and develop new ideas and experiment in accordance with those changes and finally co-create and execute any adaptation that it requires at scale. And in order to achieve that, we typically need to make much more holistic changes at multiple levels in the organization and and create a context that is kind of appropriate to spark the ability and willingness and kind of Dan Cable calls it the aliveness of the system, of the people to collaborate and create that emergent purpose. And I think if you're setting up a transformation as a big program, it almost implies that there already is a major gap between where you are and where you would naturally desire to be, which implies that you have failed to adapt yourself. So the the challenge here is really to create ambidextrous organizations where we can combine the ability to continuously improve our existing routines, but at the same time, continually explore and experiment kind of with new things. Yeah. I mean, if we pick up the ambidextrous element, I like that of, you know, how do you run two antagonistic cultures at the same time? You know, the culture of innovation and creativity and the culture of business as usual, which also needs to use continuous improvement. I think COVID has imposed a lot of changes and led to people questioning at a technical level, processes, structure, but also at a more sort of adaptive level, if we take Keegan's language. So questioning who they are, what they do, what value they bring on both an individual level, but also collectively in organisations. And, and, you know, essentially now we need to put more ambidextrous leadership and structures in than ever before. What's the biggest challenge you see in this initiative currently in trying to put the two cultures in in parallel? 
Well, f firstly, I, I, I want to say that I fully agree that with your notion that we need more adaptive organizations. In fact, BCG suggested last year that those companies that will win in the new 20s are those who can compete on learning. And I certainly believe that even in normal times, creating such ambidextrous structures and cultures, as you say, is difficult. Yet, uh, if we look at the pandemic, there are, I believe, a number of additional considerations and three things come up for me. Firstly, a discussion about resilience with all the, the uncertainty in the context and discussion about kind of um, more crises in the future. This notion of a black swan, a low frequency, high risk, uh, high impact event has um, made many people doubt whether kind of agility could provide the necessary resilience. And I remember being part of a panel where the key question indeed was, is agile fragile? And of course, I argued very strongly against that. And I think what we're seeing with the, with the uh, kind of continuation of the crisis, and it appears that many consultants agree with that, is that indeed agile organizations are also more able to, to respond to these ex external kind of challenges and therefore are able to also be more resilient. And I believe Many organizations in the future will therefore try to experiment with more flexible and more modular organizational designs. Secondly, the, what was very visible is this digital acceleration and changes to existing business models. Now, there are some companies who have been on the front foot and have benefited from these challenges, but many others indeed have found that their organizations need to catch up and accelerate their capability to innovate very, very fast. So again, I think there will be an embracing of more, more agile organizations and, and methodologies going forward. But at the same time, these challenges also imply increasing pressures to the commercials of, of many businesses. So there will be a necessity for many firms to pursue strategies to reduce costs and increase efficiencies over the next one or two years. And this implies very often a risk to revert to default, which would go against more freedom and autonomy. So I think kind of we, we will need to watch this space. But then finally, another thought comes up strongly in my mind, which is related to purpose. As you say, this crisis has also forced all of us to pause and reflect and remind ourselves that we have to somehow create organizations that behave responsibly and sustainably and create value for all stakeholders, including our employees, including the environment, which I believe points very strongly towards a more human-centric and eco-centric way of organizing. And here again, I hope that companies will find the courage, even in the context of these commercial pressures, to continue to explore new ways to create enterprises that are centered on values. So there's lots in there. I just want to unpack it a little bit. So if let's take purpose, lead, leading from the inside out, let's put it that way. For me, we're at a watershed moment for leadership and you brought up agile and you brought up purpose. I think agile organizations do react uh, more effectively, but you don't become agile overnight, of course. And it's more of a mind mindset than anything else. So, you know, where old management models and leadership paradigms are no longer relevant and need rethinking or disrupting, how do we move into something that's more aligned to servant leadership that can essentially bring out people's purpose and look at the growth and well-being of individuals as well as creating uh, a more agile organization that brings with it, you know, shareholder and business value? I think that is a very critical question, Susie, and I'm kind of 
I know we are both very passionate about kind of agile and leadership. And as you say, agile in its very essence was never meant to be just a product management methodology, but much more a mindset in terms of moving towards that true learning organization. So what does it mean for leadership and leaders? And um, maybe two thoughts. Firstly, in my experience, leadership in an agile or self-organized organization becomes much more dispersed and decentralized, which implies that traditional leaders will need to adjust their style. As, as we always say, in a world of self-organization or agile or servant leadership, the focus needs to be on the why and not on the how. Leaders don't dictate what people do, but they lead through context. Leaders need to be able to coach teams and kind of influence the wider system. And I quite like this metaphor of an acupuncturist. So leaders need to become able to sense and interpret the organizational dynamics and intervene at the level of the, of the system, of the context, this kind of organizational body to unlock and challenge, channel the, the energy flows to create more psychological safety and trust and openness and compassion and collaboration. And I think this really requires a different mindset, a different way of interacting, and also to a degree, a different skill set. Leadership becomes more difficult in an agile or self-managing model. I'm fundamentally convinced that we cannot transform organizations and indeed society without a concurrent individual transformation of its leaders. The maturity of an organization can never transcend the maturity and consciousness of its leaders. Leaders, If, if greater consciousness is not there, then this whole organizational system does not possess the stability to let go and transition towards a new model. Some people call this the leadership lid. And that is also one of the reasons why I believe many agile transformations have indeed struggled. But I'm interested that you qualify it as, as difficult, which, which I agree with you, it is difficult. I'd be interested for you to unpack that a little bit for us. But what makes it difficult, this, this leadership shift? What makes it more difficult? There's a, a very dear colleague of mine who I respect a lot. Which is a, his name is Brian Ungard. He's the chief purpose officer of Decurion, one of those deliberately developmental organizations or DDOs that Bob Keegan analyzed. And Brian always suggests there's a big difference between learning and development. Learning is about knowledge, whilst development is about letting go. And I would suggest that leadership shift that you mentioned towards more mature leaders or servant leaders is is really about letting go of what we call vertical leadership development. As long as leaders believe that success means going up that ladder from VP to SVP to EVP, hierarchy will be, will be there. As long as they continue to dominate and, and control others just to uphold their own egos, people around uh, won't flourish. And if they continue to just try to control an environment that is uncontrollable, that is ever faster changing with rigidity, there won't, there won't be self-organization. And, and I think this is really difficult. It's, for many of us, especially the, the male leader, uh, who have been trained to be in control and to always have all the answers, that is kind of a, a, a difficult process. What brought us here won't bring us there. And frankly, society and sometimes organizations very often put a premium on that illusion of control. And this is one of the challenges with the very concept of leadership. People often project their own anxieties and kind of repressed fears and hopes onto their leaders. And so I think it's really necessary to go on an individual leadership kind of development, a hero's journey, which is an iterative process and often takes a combination of more cognitive learning, kind of understanding that there are different ways, 
but also kind of an emotional aspect of experiencing that the old ways of behaving are not working anymore or are not creating meaningful results anymore. And then a will or a commitment to change. Kind of fundamentally, it's about learning to know yourself and how to interact with yourself and with others. And then about finding true purpose, connecting to something important and beyond you and greater than yourself. And this is really what we call transpersonal leadership. I think Mark Twain once said that kind of the two most important days in your lives are the day that you're born and the day you find out why. And I think this this notion of uh, a true purpose, a true calling is, is really what gives you the courage to overcome those fears, overcome your own ego, and then uh, that, that necessity to control everybody around you. It's kind of from fear to love, so to speak. And that is not easy. It's, and it's also quite difficult to attain in a classroom setting. Kind of the, very often it takes life experience and, and sometimes crises. Um, and, and hence, in terms of leadership development, we really have to learn how we can facilitate individuals to have that experience. I think I agree with you. It's different. It's difficult in a classroom. It's also difficult in organizational cultures where that isn't the cultural norm, should I say, where it is more command and control and where you are constantly stepping out of that narrative and, and that paradigm to try and effect change. I mean, one of the biggest paradigm shifts for me, whether we talk about individuals or organizations, uh, transformation is the shift from ego to eco, which, which you just mentioned. And I think the continuous learning. I think it's very hard for us to learn, unlearn and relearn constantly because our brains aren't wired like that. And that isn't what we think will make us successful. So you touched on the definition of success, you know, as a sort of linear ascension of a career path. How would you define success, therefore, in, in the new leadership paradigm? Again, it's, it's a wonderful point you're making, Susie. And I think it's not only true at organization level in terms of how we define success, but also at society level. As long as we define success in terms of GDP and profit before tax, we are, we are missing the point. As Peter Drucker once said, making money is a result and not the purpose of a corporation. And I quite strongly believe that excellence is not just about what we do, but also why we do it and, and how we do it. For both leaders and their organizations, the definition of success is, is kind of, um, has to be to create value for a comprehensive set of stakeholders and not just profit, but also to kind of act in line with a set of ethical principles. And for me, there are, there are kind of three discourses that come into play. The first one, uh, very interestingly, at Davos this year, we were talking a lot about stakeholder capitalism. So the notions to go away from kind of just shareholder returns towards the wider, uh, more ample view of uh, the constituencies that the organization serves. Then secondly, it's this notion of a human-centric organization, which comes through in that deliberately developmental organization where we try to create an environment where people flourish. And finally, there's this notion of regenerative or ecocentric systems. So, so to create value and create mutually beneficial interactions with the wider ecology around the organization to contribu contribute to this kind of aliveness of the entire system. And if we take that into account for leadership at organizational, but also individual level, we need to develop that moral agency and that space to continually evaluate whether we are acting in the best possible way. And it's not even so much about why we do what we do, but who we really are, who we want to be. What are our core values and virtues? What is our mental paradigm? As, as Socrates once said, kind of an unexamined life is not worth living. 
And here we need to be aware of the pressures around us in that shift from ego to eco that you mentioned. And in regards to the culture of organization, what I've observed is very often ownership matters a lot. If an organization is quoted on the stock market and owned, so to speak, by investors, there is very often a high pressure to deliver financial results. And that permeates the culture. Or in terms of human fear, in a situation like the pandemic, there's a lot of anxiety. And as I said earlier, many people are reverting back to kind of default in, in, in their behaviors. I believe there was a, a cover of The Economist a few months ago, which talked about pandemic strongmen and, and the, the risk that uh, human rights would be jeopardized around the globe. So I think we can see that, uh, that, that potential danger. So in a nutshell, I think it's um, in terms of being successful, above all, it, it requires awareness and mindfulness and leadership and the courage to stand up for what is right. And I always recall a, a lovely book by Ben Zander and his wife. I think it's called The Art of Possibilities, where, where Ben suggested that with everything we do, with every next sentence we speak, we have a choice. The choice between succumbing to the norms and uh, the expectations of people around us and the way we've always done things, or to dare to make, to be different and to try to make someone else's life more wonderful. As you say, sometimes our reptile brains are not really helping. It requires discipline and practice to have that mindfulness and make our intention, our attention to kind of to live our purpose and endorse those core values that we believe in. And here I found another book quite interesting by Keith Ferrazzi on leadership without authority. He has this concept of co-elevation where people kind of make a commitment to each other's development and help each other grow. And I think that is sometimes very useful in regards to finding our own blind, blind spots and getting more clarity on kind of who we really are and where we really want to go. It is. It's, it's helpful. And it's also what I call interdependent leadership. So if you look at building sort of ecosystems, flatter teal organizations, it's, it is about understanding power dynamics and understanding interdependencies and, and leading horizontally, but for, for a collective good. And I think that a lot of organizations were getting there and were putting things in place to actually understand what that means for leadership skills and what it means for the ways of working. And of course, digital come and enables quite a lot of that. What do you think is the impact of COVID on that initiative? Because I'm hearing now remote working, it's the new normal, and we can almost do everything via remote. I don't know what you think about how much you can create psychological safety virtually. Yeah, that, that, that's a, it's a great point. And I'm certainly not very convinced in my own mind that we already fully understand the true implications of COVID. And, and I think also that we sometimes start to think about or to, to speak about this new normal and next normal whilst this pandemic is far from over. And my heart really goes out to all those people who are severely impacted by, by COVID. Personally, I feel whilst this news about a vaccine being close is very hopeful, I really think this crisis will keep us in its grip to a certain extent until late 2021. Therefore, I think we have to stay very watchful whilst working under these current conditions. Secondly, in terms of the impact, I certainly think there's, uh, there's good and bad. There are positives in regards to more flexibility for employees who kind of um, find it more convenient to not always be in the office or avoid the traffic and so on. And I think that will survive the crisis. But there's also a downside, I think, particularly if the social distancing remains for a longer period of time. As you said, kind of building psychological safety and trust, especially with new joiners or across different countries and cultures in this remote working is difficult. 
Secondly, I think we are blurring boundaries between work life and home life and kind of work time and leisure time. And to a degree, we're invading people's private homes. So this notion of home shoring is also a, a, a potentially dangerous one. We, we shouldn't take this for granted. And we need to think about how we can accommodate the situation for longer. And then certainly, as we all experience, this difficulty to communicate. Sometimes over a virtual con- connection, very difficult to spot where people might have anxieties or, or kind of um, how they really feel. And whilst there was a lot of discussion about positive impact on productivity, I think uh, we are now also seeing a lot of fatigue and some challenges, especially when it comes to more complex or innovative projects. And finally, I think there's, a, there's also a question about hybrid models. As I'm always saying, it's quite easy to have, or relatively easier, to have everybody at home or everybody in the office. But the moment that we have a mixed model, things become more complicated. And I think that also poses a threat to psychological safety and trust, because sometimes what happens is that some people are in the office and they have one discussion uh, um, and, and others are not participating in that. Uh, we, can, we can find that the decisions are being taken by a specific tribe, not necessarily taking all the diversity of, of people into account or represent all those groups of employees who might not be as present as others. So these type of things we need to continue to watch. And I think leadership certainly has to, on the one hand, become more caring, but also be cognizant of these limitations in regards to what we can truly do. And therefore, we need to continue to examine it and carefully balance and constantly watch how the situation evolves. Yeah. And I mean, for me, the new normal, as it's phrased, is about balance. And it's about finding that sort of compromise, I suppose, or or that hybrid model on one, organisationally, but two, how as a leader you work and, and how you allow your team that flexibility. And I think it's interesting in terms of what digital brings to that, what it enables, but also the constraints it brings and what that means for the way you lead your people, the way you listen to your people, and effectively the way you create and recreate that inclusive environment because like you say, there are two schools of thought that this has leveled out the playing field because it provides more flexibility and allows more flexibility and therefore more equality of, of chance to you know, go to team meetings when you couldn't normally because you don't have to commute, et cetera, et cetera. And there is another school of thought where it has made differences even, even bigger. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's exactly like you describe it. I think there are no easy answers and our world is becoming very complex and we have to become very mindful. And I think that is also true when we talk about digital and technology transformation in general. There are always kind of both opportunities and dangers. If you think about artificial intelligence, it it on the one hand can can become a strong enabler for people to, to reduce the effort spent on transactional activities. But on the other hand, we could also find ourselves imprisoned, so to speak, by a new version of scientific management where we are all controlled by algorithms. And I was at a conference very recently where someone suggested that technology is our new strategy. And I was sitting there saying, oh, my God, I hope not. As, as Steve Jobs once quipped, uh, kind of robots don't have dreams. And whilst what we do is always enabled by technology and should be, of course, we cannot abdicate our accountability to make responsible choices. Humanity expresses its morality through its actions. We constantly need to think kind of, what are the options? Why are we here? How can we become good ancestors for the generations to come? Our economy must serve our humanity. 
And I'm always saying we are not leaders because we rule. We are leaders because we truly care. And I think, again, that that caring needs to be very much at the forefront of our thinking. No, and I think we're constantly having to bridge the gap between digital and human as individuals in our daily lives, but also within our working lives, and even more so, I think, as leaders, so operationally. What would you advise for organizations wanting to start on this journey to building a more collaborative organization? Oh, that, that is a very, again, a very ambitious question, and I couldn't possibly pretend to have absolute answers. As, as I always say, when I was young, I had all the answers. Now I'm older, I've got all the questions. But maybe to offer a few thoughts. As I said at the very beginning, it, I think it's important to intervene holistically at, at different levels, especially uh, in terms of structures and processes, cultures, and of course, leadership. And when it comes to structures, I think we can observe a whole bunch of experiments to move beyond agile. We talked about ambidextrous organizations. They are meshed uh, ecosystems of teams. There are experiments with sociocracy and holacracy, uh, companies like Hire and Michelin, etc. A very interesting book is uh, Gary Hamels and Michele Zanini's new book on humanocracy, which we discussed at the uh, Drucker Forum a few weeks ago. So some very good examples, and I think... People should just experiment. Now, secondly, when it comes to processes, I believe there's a, a necessity to install what Bill Torbett calls liberating structures to really facilitate generative dialogue across as many people as possible. And this implies methodologies and routines and rituals like agile stand-ups and retrospectives and so on. And, and sometimes forgotten is, is um, the necessity to look at conflict or tension management in organization. We can never achieve full consensus in a complex system, and therefore we must have ways to deal in a positive and effective way with the kind of different ideas, which ultimately gives rise to innovation. And of course, also support processes. So when it comes to HR or finance processes, I think we really need to look at the way we do performance management, for example, or the way we do budgeting, both processes traditionally are not in line with an agile setup. And then in terms of culture, and again, we we talked about this already, I think we really need to look at how do we enable ownership across a wide range of of people? How do we create a blame-free culture? How do we focus on relationships? How do we build agency and so on? Uh, Karen Tobiasen from Nordea just published a new book which describes the transformation journey of of their bank from fear to love. And I think it's very interesting. It's also uh, interesting to talk about love in the context of an organization. But I would also beware of simplification. Every organization is unique, so it's very difficult to offer answers that are generally true, whatever consultants might say. So above all, I think we need to embed in an organization that ability to constantly hold space for these questions and then experiment with answers and and, and adapt in in line with core beliefs and principles, but of course also the specific environment that the organization faces. I'm really interested that that we, we stopped on culture and we stopped on a culture of compassion and love and words that people don't equate with the workplace today. But I think to come back to the need to put humanity and business together more, more tightly, it's imperative that we do that. What, what is the role of culture in there for you? Indeed, indeed. And as, as people say, culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
And I think it's interesting to look at culture. So some people suggest culture is kind of the way we do things around here. It sets the tone and, and creates an energy field that shapes how people interact. And I would say kind of even more importantly, culture influences how we treat each other and, and what we truly care for. So if we want to create a learning organization where people collaborate and learn together, we need a human-centric culture that supports that, where people support each other, help each other to grow, where there's no fear of failure and, and that compassion and kindness and true dedication to a common cause. And I think what makes culture so difficult and so intriguing is that it is a, as people say, a derivative property. It's not something that you can directly influence. It's somehow the result of values and beliefs and assumptions below the surface. And when you study psychodynamics, there, there, is indeed, there is indeed a notion of kind of our inner life being our outer life, individually and collectively. So we very often need to dig deeper below that surface, kind of individual and collective and team level to understand where certain behavioral patterns and symptoms actually stem from. And this is why I think in these DDOs, deliberately developmental organizations, we deliberately invest in the agency of everybody to contribute and enable the reflection of people to understand kind of who they are and how they uh, want to interact in, in, in every situation they encounter, to be close to themselves and, and others and have that emotional intelligence. And I think, again, if we want to influence culture, it invariably brings us back to leadership and the abilities of leaders to shape the context and hold the space for, for that kind of uh, evolution to occur, for, for the, the growth of all the individuals and teams to develop and collaborate. And I think, again, we have ample research that shows how in, a, in organizational systems, employees model their behaviors and superiors. So leaders have, at the same time, great influence, but also great responsibility to install that culture of, of kindness, transpa transparency, compassion, and so on that we talk about. Again, it, it's, that is not very easy. Right? We as leaders have to be very aware and, and stay in the moment and, and have that ability to continuously investigate where we're going. And it's a practice, isn't it? And it is hard, as you say. I think I just want to finish with, you often talk about in your presentations and articles, the fifth revolution. Is that what you mean? Is it about, you know, to be the change we want to see, we need to understand ourselves and it comes from within? You know, what characterizes or what do you characterize as the fifth revolution? Yes, absolutely. When I talk about fifth revolution, I'm, I'm essentially looking at three things. Firstly, as we said earlier, the necessity to redefine success and look at our purpose beyond profit and how we can build more sustainable and regenerative organizations in the way kind of, we interact and serve the ecology and society around us. Secondly, at the organizational level, it really implies the acknowledgement that companies are more than machines and people are not simply means to an end. And I think we need to exchange metaphors and paradigms. We often characterize organizations as deterministic machines and, and talk about human capital or human resources, or language that is coming from a behaviorist paradigm. And I think we need to change that and acknowledge organizations as living beings that have emotions and hearts and souls. And that also changes the way we interact and organize the system and drive change. And finally, at individual level, like you say, it requires us to evolve our own maturity to reconsider who we are and what we stand for as leaders and more generally as adults. How can we serve the community in, in greater good? 
So when we talk about fourth, the, the, the fourth revolution, we very much talk about technological change. And that is important. Yet, as, as I said earlier, I strongly believe that we need the century not only to be about technological acceleration, but about the evolution of humanity and its capacity to create a more sustainable future. I mean, I, I could pick up loads of things from that and we could talk for another couple of hours, but time is running. So I, w- I would like to ask if you had one last call for action for leaders wanting to shift into the 21st century leadership paradigm, what would it be? Well, certainly a lot to say about that, but two quick suggestions. Um, firstly, look after yourselves and create that space for true reflection and growth. And if possible, find someone who honestly and earnest, earnestly is interested in your development and can be a critical friend at your side, someone who cares about your development and can help you to find those blind spots, as we said earlier, in terms of co-elevation. And secondly, I think really be there for others. Invest in your ability to help others grow. And here, one thing that has been very helpful for me is to become a coach in particular, not, not so much the cognitive behavioral training, but this notion of psychodynamics, which was uh, proposed by the Tavistock Institute in the UK, I found very, very enlightening. Yeah, going under the surface, so to speak. Correct. Okay, thank you very much. I'm going to leave our listeners with uh, those two calls to action. Ossie, thanks so much for coming and sharing your thoughts with us. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more and exchange on these subjects with you? First of all, Susie, it, this was a great pleasure. I've really enjoyed the talk and, and uh, also our previous one. In terms of contacting me, the easiest is on LinkedIn. Just search me and I'm really happy to continue the conversation. I b- really believe in this concept of peer communities of learning. And in every good conversation, there's something which helps us to look at the world a bit yep. differently. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, please head over to iTunes and give us your opinion and review. So it's bye from me for now. And we'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk.